Perhaps you've heard the statement, Christianity isn't about rules, it's about relationships. It's an idea that's enjoyed great popularity over recent years, especially as pastors have increasingly emphasized a personal relationship with God. But as one author writes, this evangelistic approach seeks to solve the public relations problem, specifically of the Ten Commandments which have been seen by so many to be the most obsolete utterance of a grumpy, thunderous God to a disobedient people, neither of whom seem very relatable or likable. So the statement, Christianity isn't about rules, it's about relationships, seems to be an attempt to trade the grumpy Old Testament God of law for the compassionate New Testament God of grace. What's the problem with that kind of thinking? Well, number one, God's law and God's grace are somehow pitted against one another. Number two, the God of the Old Testament and the God of the New Testament are somehow placed in opposition. When in fact they are one and the same God. Hebrews 13 says, God is the same yesterday, today, and forever. James 1.17 says, with him there is no variation or shadow due to change. So God is unchanging, which means God's justice and God's mercy, God's law and God's grace have always coexisted. So rather than seeing the sin of lawlessness as the barrier to our relationship with God, we've steadily grown to regard the law itself as the barrier. As a result, we've come to believe that rules somehow prevent relationship. So is Christianity about rules? Or is Christianity about relationships? Well, as you know, the Christian faith is absolutely about relationship. But while our faith is personal, it's also communal. Meaning we're saved into a special relationship with the God of the universe. And therefore, into a special relationship with other believers as well. So Christianity is all about our relationship with God and with others. And because that's true... Christianity is also unapologetically about rules. Why is that? Well, because rules show us how to live rightly in relationships, including our relationship with God. So rather than threatening those relationships, rules enable those relationships to flourish, to grow, to develop, to thrive. So listen to me when I say God is not trying to crush us with red tape regulations and bureaucracy. The Ten Commandments should not and must not be viewed as prison bars. But instead, should be viewed as traffic laws. Now maybe there are some rebels out there who think the world would be a better place without traffic laws. You certainly drive like it. But most of us think speed limits, road signs, and traffic lights are pretty helpful. Certainly, when you're driving over some mountain pass with with switchbacks back and forth and 100-foot cliffs, you don't curse the guardrails that keep you from plunging to your death, do you? Of course not. So someone put them there with great purpose for your good. So you might travel along in life freely, safely, peacefully, and with great comfort. You see, that's how we should think about the Ten Commandments 
as something God put in place with great purpose for our good so that we might travel along in life freely, safely, and peacefully and in a right relationship with him and with others. So if you would, go ahead and open your Bibles with me to Exodus chapter 20 as we kick off our series here on the Ten Commandments. Exodus 20 is on page 61. If you're using one of the Bibles in the chairs in front of you, I also encourage you to grab my outline from the bulletin titled my sermon this morning, Undivided Allegiance, Three Points, Commandment Given, Commandment Fulfilled, and Commandment Applied. Follow along as I read Exodus chapter 20, verses 1 to 3. And God spoke all these words, saying, I am the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. You shall have no other gods before me. Now those words obviously don't come out of nowhere. Instead, there's a context to the Ten Commandments, and it's summarized right there in verses 1 to 2. God said, I'm the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. Now just think about that. Because it's still been less than two months since God delivered Israel and provided this glorious salvation. And remember the progression. Because it included ten plagues. Just so Pharaoh would let God's people go. So that would all be fresh in their minds. God turning the Nile to blood. The frogs, the gnats, the flies, boils, hail, locusts, darkness, the death of the firstborn, then delivering them through the Red Sea. So another miraculous deliverance, Israel saved, the Egyptians destroyed. And who can forget God's provision in the wilderness? Water out of a rock, bread from heaven. And then their arrival at Mount Sinai, Exodus 19. God descending in thunder and lightning, a thick cloud, smoke and fire, and the trumpet blast growing louder and louder as God came closer and closer, absolutely terrifying the people. But all of that was necessary, right? So that this people might know this God is their God. Each of the ten plagues was purposeful. So not just random signs of power, but purposeful plagues. Each a symbolic defeat of an Egyptian god. Osiris, the god of the Nile, bleeds out when Yahweh turns the river to blood. Ray, the, the sun god, embodied by Pharaoh, completely destroyed when Yahweh brings darkness on the land for three days and three nights. And of course, the death of the firstborn, demonstrating that God reigns supreme over life and death. The plagues were purposeful. So Israel might know that there is only one God who crushes all other gods, and that's Yahweh. So the only reason that the Ten Commandments can have any sort of binding obligation or compelling authority is the fact that God created them. He made them. He loved them. He provided for them. He protected them. He delivered them out of slavery and he rescued them from death. Therefore, as a result, God has total authority over them. That's A, the context of the commandment. Now B, the content of the commandment. Because the logic makes sense, doesn't it? 
I mean, if this God completely destroyed all other rival gods, it makes total sense that that this would be his first commandment. Verse 3, that you shall have no other gods before me. So Israel, remember my deliverance. And as a result, pledge singular, unchallenged, complete and total allegiance to me alone. But what does that look like specifically? Well, stated positively, number one, it looks like worshiping God exclusively. Stated negatively, number two, it looks like not worshiping idols. Specifically, not putting anything as a priority over God. So number one, worshiping God exclusively. Because we want to make sure that that we don't misunderstand the phrase, no other gods before me, to suggest, in fact, that there are other gods. God is not suggesting some sort of polytheism, saying there are many gods, so, so what you need to do, what you have to do, is give your God, whoever that is, first place amongst all the other gods that exist. That's not what the first commandment is saying. And we know that because the rest of the Mosaic Covenant assumes monotheism. So no other gods should be worshipped because no other gods exist. There's only one God. And that God is Yahweh. We have to be clear about that. By the way, Paul makes the exact same point. 1 Corinthians chapter 8, verses 4 to 6. When he says, therefore, as to eating of food offered to idols, we know that an idol has no real existence and that there is no God but one. For although there may be so-called gods in the heavens and in, on earth, as indeed there are many gods and many lords, yet for us there is one God, the Father, and one Lord, Jesus Christ. So the gods of this world are only so-called gods, which means they have no ontological existence, meaning they don't really exist. Instead, there's only one true supreme being in the universe, and he demands to be worshipped exclusively. Now, one of the ways in which we know that that there is only one God in the universe is from Genesis chapter 1. The Bible starts out unlike any other ancient Near Eastern creation narrative, right? They all begin with either two gods fighting or a god and a goddess procreating or one god slaying another god. In contrast, when you, when you come to Genesis chapter 1, verse 1, it says, in the beginning, God. God created the heavens and the earth. So God alone, the one true God, he alone creates all things. Like the entire universe. Because he alone is God. That is significant for us to grab a hold of this morning. John Dixon makes this wonderful connection. He says monotheism is not just the Bible's first commandment. It's the Bible's first thought. That's important. Because the other nine commandments are going to speak to different things that we should or shouldn't do. But the first commandment calls for a certain kind of relationship. It tells us how to relate to the one true God of the universe. Now you might be wondering, why does the God of the Bible even address these so-called gods if these so-called gods don't really exist? Great question. 
He addresses these so-called gods because he's dealing with people who make these gods up in their own minds. So in order to fulfill their own desires, they create these gods. So to address these people, he has to address their so-called gods to get after those people's hearts. More on that in just a moment. First, let's turn the command around from a positive statement to a negative statement. Because when we do so, the relational component, I believe, of the first commandment becomes absolutely obvious. So stated positively, number one, worship God exclusively. But stated negatively, number two, do not worship idols. So rather than having a heart after God's own heart exclusively, you now have a heart after other things. John Calvin says the human heart is an idol factory churning out new idols every day like a conveyor belt in a manufacturing plant. But the specific sin in the first commandment, Calvin says, is like a shameless woman who brings home an adulterer right before the very eyes of her husband only to vex his mind all the more. So helpful. Marriage is a wonderful analogy for the first commandment. Because you can't have a both-and relationship with your spouse. Can you? I mean, suppose a husband came home, and he he says to his wife, Hey, honey, it's so good to see you. But I want to introduce you to someone who's become very special to me. Now, don't get me wrong— You're very special to me. You're still very special to me. But this woman has also become very special to me. So I'm going to be spending time with both of you. So so some nights I'll be with you. And then some nights I'll be with her. I hope you don't mind. What should the wife say to that? That's great, sweetheart. I'm so honored to still be a part of your life. Thank you so much for including me. Absolutely not. Right? She's got every reason to be jealous and rip-roaring mad. In fact, we'd be worried about her if she wasn't mad. Here's the point. Marriage, by definition, is a covenant relationship that demands forsaking all others. And according to the first commandment, it works the exact same way with God, which means listen very carefully. Love is at the very heart of the first commandment. So it's not just rules, but rules that enable our relationship with God to flourish. So if we truly love God, we will love no one else. And nothing else. Nothing should come close to the way in which we love God. No competing affections. In fact, that's why Deuteronomy 6 was so foundational to the nation of Israel. Deuteronomy 6.4, well known as the Shema. Shema means hear, right? That's, that's the first word. Deuteronomy 6.4, hear, O Israel, the Lord our God is one exclusively. That's who we should worship. Therefore, as a result of the one true God, you shall love the Lord your God with all of your heart and with all of your soul and with all of your might. So there can be 
No and in our relationship with God. So it's not love the Lord your God and love something else. No, according to the first commandment, we should love the Lord our God and worship him exclusively. Because he alone is God. So that's number one, the commandment given. Number two, the commandment fulfilled. Now, as we move forward in redemptive history from the Old Testament to the New Testament, what we will see, unfortunately, over and over and over again is A, how this commandment was failed by Israel. I'm going to give you some examples, and we're going to just kind of flip our way through the Old Testament. So, let me kind of get you set up here. Israelites wander around in the wilderness for 40 years, which takes us all the way through Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and the second giving of the law. That's Deuteronomy. Then Moses dies, and we have a new leader being raised up. It's Joshua. So if you could flip forward to Joshua 6, 8, page 182. So Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy, Joshua 8, Joshua 6, sorry, Joshua 6, verse 18. Under Joshua, they spy out the land. They cross the Jordan. They start conquering the Canaanites, including Jericho. You remember that story, right? They march around the city six days. And then on the seventh day, they they march around Jericho seven times. Then they blow the trumpets. And what happens? The walls come a-tumbling down. But before they do that, God commands them. Look at Joshua 6, 18. Keep yourselves from the things devoted to destruction Lest when you have devoted them, you take any of the devoted things and make the camp of Israel a thing for destruction and bring trouble upon it. What's the command? You shall have no other gods before me. Don't be devoted to anyone or anything other than me. Don't take the devoted things. What happens? Well, the walls of Jericho come a-tumbling down. But when they move on to Ai, the Israelites are defeated. Why are they defeated? Because of the sin of Achan. Look at what God says in Joshua 7, 11. Israel has sinned, meaning Achan has taken some of the devoted things. They have turned transgressed my covenant that I commanded them. For they have taken some of the devoted things. They have stolen and lied and put them among their own belongings. Therefore, the people of Israel cannot stand before their enemies. Why? Because they have become devoted for destruction. I will be with you no more unless you destroy the devoted things from among you. Do you see how important this is? To have no other gods before the one true God of the Bible. The only God because the sin of Achan is that he devoted himself to other things. To other gods before the one true God. What's the consequence? Is this no big deal? Hey, sometimes we mess up. No big deal. It's fine. No. Look at verse 25. All of Israel stoned him. God is not messing around. Now, I wish I could say this was a once and done kind of thing, but it's not. Joshua is dealing with this exact same thing the entire book of Joshua. Flip forward to the end of Joshua. Page 199, Joshua 24. Joshua 24. What does he say? Was it a once and done? No. Joshua 24, verse 14. He says, put away the gods that your fathers served beyond the river and in Egypt and serve the Lord. 
Choose this day whom you will serve, whether the gods of your fathers beyond the river or the gods of the Amorites in whose lands you now dwell. But as for me and my house, we will serve the Lord. How did the people respond? Verse 16, they say, far be it from us that we should forsake the Lord to serve other gods. For it is the Lord, our God, who brought us out from the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. Verse 18, here's what they say. Therefore, we also will serve the Lord, for he is our God. That's great. Let's do that. That's not what they do. Evidence flipped the page. The book of Judges. Number two, the sin of Judges. Because it only goes from bad to worse. I mean, do you know the structure of the book of Judges? There are literally seven cycles in the book of Judges where the Israelites worship false gods. God allows them to be oppressed. They cry out for help. God raises up a deliverer, a judge to save them, only to have them reject God again and worship and bow down to false gods. Seven times. Seven cycles for the Israelites. I'll give you just a glimpse. Judges chapter 2, verse 11. And the people of Israel did what was evil in the sight of the Lord and served the Baals. And they abandoned the Lord, the God of their fathers, who had brought them out of the land of Egypt. They went after other gods from among the gods of the peoples who were around them. And they bowed down to them. And they provoked the Lord to anger. Notice verse 13. They abandoned the Lord and served the Baals and the Ashtaroth. So the anger of the Lord was kindled against Israel and he gave them over to plunderers who plundered them and he sold them into the hand of their surrounding enemies so that they could no longer withstand their enemies. What do they do? They cry out to God. How does God respond? Verse 16. Then the Lord raised up judges who saved them out of the hand of those who plundered them. Yet verse 17. They did not listen to their judges for they whored after other gods and bowed down to them. They soon turned aside from the way in which their fathers had walked, who had obeyed the commandments of the Lord, and they did not do so. Verse 18, whenever the Lord raised up judges for them, the Lord was with the judge, and he saved them from the hand of their enemies all the days of the judge. For the Lord was moved to pity by their groaning because of those who afflicted and oppressed them. But whenever the judge died, they turned back and were more corrupt than their fathers, going after other gods, serving them And bowing down to them. Seven cycles of sin. Worship false gods. Oppressed by foreign rulers. Cry out to God. Judge raised up. People saved. And then right back to worshiping false gods. Again, I wish I could say things changed. We do have a season of goodness. King David was a man after God's own heart. Solomon did build the temple. Right? Those are good things. But Solomon also had hundreds of wives. And as a result, he worshipped hundreds of false gods. Go ahead and flip forward to 1 Kings 11. 1 and 2 Samuel, 1 Kings 11, page 291. First Kings 11, verse 1. Now, King Solomon loved many foreign women, along with the daughter of Pharaoh, Moabite, Ammonite, Edomite, Sidonian, and Hittite women, 
from the nations concerning which the Lord had said to the people of Israel, you shall not enter into marriage with them, neither shall they with you. Why? For surely they will turn your heart after their gods. But Solomon clung to these in love. Verse 3, he had 700 wives who were his princesses and 300 concubines. And his wives turned away his heart. For when Solomon was old, his wives turned away his heart after other gods, and his heart was not wholly true to the Lord his God. Verse 6, so Solomon did what was evil in the sight of the Lord and did not wholly follow the Lord. Verse 7, Solomon built a high place to Chemosh, the abomination of Moab, and Molech, the abomination of the Ammonites on the mountain east of Jerusalem. Think of that. Just, Just up the mountain. Here's the temple to worship the one true God of the Bible. So just up the mountain is where he set these high places. Look at what it says. And so he did for all his foreign wives. So 700 wives means 700 altars. Wholeheartedly breaking the first commandment. You shall have no other gods before me. Exact same thing for every single bad king, both the northern and southern kingdom. They all worshiping false gods. I want you to be clear. They would have all said they were still worshiping Yahweh, the one true God of the Bible. But it's a both and kind of worshiping. So yes, worship Yahweh, but also worship Baal and Moloch, and Chemosh, and other, any other god that fits your fancy. You might be wondering, why would they do this? I mean, the first commandment is so clear, isn't it? Worship God exclusively. Why the nonstop, constant failure? Why the unavoidable attraction to false gods? Old Testament scholar Doug Stewart is so helpful. He gives us nine reasons why the Israelites, and I would suggest us as well, were in this, why we, why we run towards false gods. So here we go. I, I didn't have room in your outline to list them, so if you want to, you're going to have to write them down. Nine reasons why we're so tempted to run after false gods. Number one, it's guaranteed. You just say the right words and the results are guaranteed. Number two, it's selfish. Do what the false god wants and they promise to do whatever you want in return. Number three, it's easy. There are no moral obligations. It's a works-based system, tit for tat. So no moral obligation. Number four, it's convenient. There's temples and altars everywhere. You can, you can worship anytime you want. Number five, it's normal because it's what everybody else is doing. Number six, it's logical. It makes sense, right? They have a God for everything. You want to get pregnant? You go to the fertility God. It just makes sense. It's logical. Number seven, it's visible. The idols are right there in front of you. So seeing is believing. Number eight, it's indulgent because worship included eating and drinking in excess. Number nine, it's erotic. Often included temple prostitutes. 
See, it's not hard to see why idolatry was so attractive. The religion of the world is guaranteed, selfish, easy, convenient, normal, logical, visible, indulgent, and erotic. Why is that? Because it's a system made by men, for men, but not for God. First commandment, you shall worship the one true God exclusively. So what do we do? As I said last week, we obviously can't look to Israel to keep the first commandment. Can't look to Moses. Can't look to Joshua or David or any of the other kings. We have to look forward to the Lord Jesus Christ. Because Jesus came not to abolish the first commandment, but to fulfill it. So A, the commandment failed by Israel, but now the commandment fulfilled in Jesus. So let's flip forward to Matthew chapter 5. Page 810. Out of the Old Testament into the New Testament, Matthew chapter 5. Well known as the Sermon on the Mount. As you're turning, I want you to know, Matthew sets up his entire gospel so that we might see Jesus as the greater than Moses. Just like Moses, Jesus went down to Egypt for a season. He was almost killed by the hands of a wicked king. He was called out of Egypt. Matthew tells us that this was fulfilled in Jesus, the coming out of Egypt, fulfills Exodus 4.22, out of Egypt I called my son, that's fulfilled in Jesus. Then Jesus goes through the waters of baptism, out into the wilderness for 40 days, not 40 years, and then he goes up onto the mountain. You have heard that it was said, but I say to you, and goes through the Ten Commandments. Matthew sets it up that we would see Jesus as the greater than Moses. What does he say when he gets up on the mountain? Look at verse 17, Matthew chapter 5. Do not think that I have come to abolish the law or the prophets. I do not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. How exactly does Jesus fulfill the the first commandment? That you shall have no other gods before me, meaning before the one and only God of the Bible. Well, he fulfills it, number one, in his life, and then he fulfills it, number two, in his teaching. Fulfills it in his life. He fulfills it in his person, right? Remember, Jesus is God. He's God in the flesh. John 1, 1, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. Verse 14, the Word became flesh, And dwelt among us, and we beheld his glory, glories of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. So Jesus fulfills the first commandment because Jesus is God. That's who he is. Hebrews 1.3, he's the radiance of the Father's glory and the exact representation of his nature, and he upholds all things by the word of his power. Jesus fulfills the first commandment in his life because Jesus is God in the flesh. He also fulfills it, number two, in his teaching. If you would, flip forward to Luke 14. Luke 14. Matthew, Mark, Luke, Luke 14, verse 45. Passage is so helpful because it gets after our hearts with regard to the first commandment. Luke 14, verse 25. 
Now great crowds accompanied him, and he turned and said to them, If anyone comes to me and does not hate his own father and mother and wife and children and brothers and sisters, and yes, even his own life, he cannot be my disciple. For whoever does not bear his own cross and come after me cannot be my disciple. For which of you, desiring to build a tower, does not first sit down and count the cost, whether he has enough to complete it? Otherwise, when he has laid a foundation and it is not able to finish, all who see it begin to mock him, saying, This man began to build and was not able to finish. Or what king going out to encounter another king in war will not sit down first and deliberate whether he is able with 10,000 to meet him who comes against him with 20,000? And if not, while the other is yet a great way off, he sends a delegation and asks for terms of peace. Why does he bring all this up? Because he wants you to count the cost of what he's going to say next. Verse 33. So therefore, any one of you who does not renounce all that he has cannot be my disciple. Remember the first commandment. You shall have no other gods before me. Stated positively, worship God exclusively. Stated negatively, don't worship idols. So Jesus takes the claim for undivided allegiance, worship, praise, and loyalty to God alone, and he says it all belongs to him now. He's to be prioritized over every other relationship in your life, even your own family, even your own self. Now, of course, you can't read that simplistically. He's not calling and commanding you to literally hate your family or yourself. He provided for his own mother when he was on the cross. He's not saying to hate them literally. He's saying that you need to love me so much more than them. That to even consider that relationship would be to think of it as hate because you love him so much more than any other relationship, more than your own self. So don't let that minimize the significance of this command. See this as the fulfillment of the first commandment, that Jesus demands to be the top priority in your heart over every other person, every other relationship, every other thing, every other want, every other need, every other hope, every desire in your life. He says to you this morning, no other gods before me. Nothing comes before Jesus, period. He allows no other challengers, permits no other rivals, tolerates no other competitors for your affections. Instead, he expects and he demands that all of your life be 100% given to the worship of him and him alone. That's what it means that Jesus fulfilled the first commandment, total devotion to Jesus. Here's the question. What exactly does that look like then for us? Commandment given, commandment fulfilled, now number three, commandment applied. Our first response must be, A, to turn to Christ uniquely. 
Because on this side of the incarnation, the first commandment means giving Jesus all the worship he rightly deserves. So as a result of his death, burial, and resurrection, right, the God of the universe came down, lived a sinless life, died a sinner's death, and extends to us this glorious offer of salvation. But that salvation is in his name and in his name alone. Just think about the exclusivity of the Lord Jesus Christ, that he alone is the Savior of the world. Acts 4.12, there is no one else. There is no other name given among heaven, given under heaven, among which we must be saved apart from the Lord Jesus Christ. He is the one mediator between God and man. There's not a whole bunch of other mediators. There's one mediator, the Lord Jesus, who gave himself as a ransom for all. I I want you to understand that obeying the first commandment starts when you put your faith in the Lord Jesus Christ and you worship him exclusively. He alone is God. He alone is worthy of your worship. That's why Philippians 2.10 tells us that it's before Jesus and Jesus alone that every knee will bow and every tongue will confess. When does that happen? What exactly is that? That's the exclusive worship of Jesus at the end of the age. You have to be clear this morning that if you don't know God through faith in Christ, then you don't really know the God of the Bible. It is not enough to belong to a monotheistic religion or or, or to, to dedicate a little time to praying or to throw a few bucks in the offering, right? Those are religious activities, but we're not worshiping godly, worshiping God rightly if that's what we're doing exclusively. If it's just Christian behavior, Christian activities, that's not worshiping God rightly. To worship God rightly is to put your faith in Christ. So if that's you this morning, I don't know your heart. I don't know your activities. I don't know why you do what you do. But if you're just going through the religious motions, I know I should come to church. I know I should give to the church. I know I should spend time praying, certainly before meals. I should be grateful for the food that's on my table. Right? If you're just going through the motions, then I would appeal to you to obey the first commandment, which means to put your faith in Christ and to worship him exclusively, not other things, him and him alone. So A, turn to Christ uniquely. Then B, reject dual allegiance completely. If we're honest... It's so easy, it's really quite easy to be just like Israel, where we joyfully and consistently, verbally and intellectually affirm that there's no other God apart from God the Father Almighty and the Lord Jesus Christ. And yet practically, live our lives like polytheists, worshiping other gods. Because idolatry is often a both-and arrangement, isn't it? 
where we wholeheartedly declare we absolutely need God, we, we love God, we worship God. But we also need a spouse. Or we need a smaller waist size. Or we have to have better grades, good health, more money, rest and relaxation, a little entertainment, less stress, more fun, and a week off just to enjoy them all. And then we rationalize our both-and arrangement by offering God a little bit of worship. Some token prayers, little Bible reading, throw some cash in the offering. And then we think everything should be fine because we at least have acknowledged God somehow. Yet Jesus says, Matthew 6, 24, that no one can serve two masters. For either you will hate the one and love the other or be devoted to the one and despise the other. So we may think that dual allegiance is somehow acceptable or unavoidable. But Jesus is saying it's not even possible. Because God created us for single-minded allegiance. So we've been created by one God. And we bear the image of one God. And therefore, we should worship one God, which means we must reject any form of dual allegiance completely. Now here's a question you might be asking. How do we know when we've got a competing allegiance? Well, ask yourself this question. Is there anything in my life that I treasure more than God. Matthew 13, Jesus tells a story about a man who found a treasure buried in a field. And that man decided in joy to go and sell all that he had so that he could buy that field. An exclusive desire. So ask yourself, is there anything in my life that I treasure more than God? Is there anything that I have to have that would cause me to not go ahead and buy the field? Whatever turns your head, oh, that is glorious. There's your competing allegiance. Whatever you double take to have, that's a competing allegiance. What consumes your thinking? What consumes your time? What consumes your time because you're thinking about it all the time? What in your life are you willing to sin in order to get? What in your life causes you to sin if you don't get it? Those are competing allegiances. Question you're trying to answer in your heart is, is Christ your greatest treasure? Critical ideas we've got to get straight in our minds proactively. We need to know this going into this good fight of faith, right? Number one, our hearts are an idle factory. So, so we're constantly generating new allegiances on a daily basis. Number two, there's only one way to respond to those allegiances. 
It's not to play with them. It's not to engage them. It's not to spend more time or more money on them. No, it is to put them to death. So see, bury both ands instantly. You know, one of my favorite stories on this topic comes from Genesis 35. If you can place yourself in redemptive history, Jacob has already wrestled with God. He's on his way home to the promised land. At this point, he's broken. He's a humbled man. All sorts of bad things have happened while he's been out of the promised land. His daughter's been violated. His sons are murderers. And he's failed to seek justice. And somewhere along the way, as if all of that wasn't bad enough, his family has picked up and is worshiping foreign gods. And he's heading into the promised land. What does he do? Verse 4 says, So they gave to Jacob all the foreign gods they had, all the rings in their ears. And Jacob buried them. He buried them under the tree that was at Shechem. Helpful to know Shechem was the place of idol worship. So Jacob buried the idols where the idols were most often worshipped. Here's the point. To rid ourselves of competing allegiances, we must put them to death. That's the language of the New Testament as well. Paul says the same thing, Colossians 3, 5 to 10. He says, put to death, therefore what is earthly in you. This is so helpful We don't struggle by worshiping physical idols. No, we struggle with all sorts of other things that get after our heart. And you hear it when he says, put to death, therefore, what is earthly in you. Sexual immorality. Well, that would be like pornography. You're addicted to it. It's an idol in your life. You have to have it. Sexual immorality, impurity, passion, evil desire, covetousness. There's things that I have to have. Paul says, describes those things as idolatry. On account of these things, the wrath of God is coming. In these you too once walked when you were living in them, but now you must put them all away. You must put them to death. Anger, wrath, malice, slander, obscene talk from your mouth. Do not lie to one another, seeing that you have put off the old self with its practices and have put on the new self, which is being renewed in knowledge after what? the image of its creator. Here's what's so awesome about this passage. Paul's list is nearly identical to the Ten Commandments. Why is that? Because if you obey the first commandment, then all the rest naturally fall in line. So we must be those who bury our both ands instantly. So we might worship God rightly through faith in Christ with radical, complete, and total devotion because he alone is worthy of our worship. As we close, let me just ask you, what idol threatens your allegiance to God the most? Our heart is an idol factory. What idol threatens your allegiance the most? Is it the love of money? Is it the desire for a perfect family? Is it your health? the desire to be physically fit, to not get cancer, 
to not show any signs of getting old or slowing down? Is it comfort and entertainment? Is it living life without issues or concerns? That gets me every single time. As soon as my day doesn't go the way that I'd like my day to go, grumble, which tells me that's an idol. What is the greatest challenge to your allegiance to King Jesus? More important question. What are you doing to tear down that high place of false worship? See, in order to put to death those competing affections, we must be cultivating a greater love for the Lord Jesus. We must be reading our Bibles. We must be spending time in fellowship. We must be devoting ourselves to prayer. We must absolutely love the gathering of the saints where we come together to worship his holy name. Beloved, let us be those who continually turn to Christ uniquely, that he would be our daily refuge and our strong tower so that we might reject competing allegiances in our lives and that we might be those who bury them instantly. All by the power of God's spirit to the praise of God's holy name. He is worthy of our exclusive worship. Allow me to pray to that end. Father, we recognize that our hearts are an idol-making factory. We hear the list and think, oh my goodness, all of those are competing affections in my life. Father, I pray that we would recognize that all those things are good things. They're wonderful things. So, so many of them are wonderful things. But we want to be those whose heart affection is for the Lord Jesus Christ supremely. That you would rule and reign in our hearts. That we would delight in you more than anything else. That, that we would be able to say with, with honesty in our heart that we are happy to sell all other things. That we might have the treasure of the good news of the gospel in the Lord Jesus. And yet as we move forward, Lord, I pray that you would be doing a good work in our minds and in our hearts that we would continue to make that choice day after day after day because you are worthy of all of our worship and honor and praise. We pray all these things in Jesus' precious name. Amen.